Melissa Harrison here for our latest edition of the Religion Unplugged podcast. Today, our executive director, Paul Gladder, is in Norwalk, Connecticut, talking with Tim Poole. Tim is an award-winning American journalist, YouTuber, and political commentator. He was the founding member of Vice News. He worked at Fusion, and he has covered major events all around the world. He might best be known for his groundbreaking live stream coverage of the 2011 Occupy Wall Street protest movement. He has a lot to share about his perspective on journalism and religion from a global perspective, and he talks with Paul about it. Let's listen in. Okay, so this is the Religion Unplugged podcast, and I'm interested in uh, your thoughts on big tech and the risks to First Amendment, First Amendment being both freedom of expression as applied in written and verbal form, but also freedom of religion and other parts of it. What do what does the world need to be concerned about? What should I, religious people be concerned about regarding so he, what so you here, see here, in big tech? So, so here's a question that I ask uh, my friends. How many Christian nations are there? And I don't necessarily mean like declared, but like majority Are you Christian. talking like Sweden, Germany with like a Lutheran kind of official state church? or um, Just or, like or majority more, Christian. Majority Christian... I'd have to guess, but I don't know, uh, 20? It's, it's a couple dozen. Yeah. Like, do you know how many Christians are on the planet? Of very, whatever, you know, denomination. A like couple billion, two, three billion? Uh, I think it's, I think it's two, two close to two, 2.1. It sounds right, yeah. Do you know how many Muslim nations there are on the planet that re- officially recognize Islam and have majority is- Islamic? Um, 50, 100? Uh, it's a couple dozen. Yeah, right, a couple dozen. Oh. And, and how many Muslims are there on the planet? One point one billion. One point six. One point six. Yeah. Then I ask, how many Jewish countries are in the world? Uh, one. Technically, Technically, it's divided into two states. So you've got Israel, Palestine, and the conflict. Right. So it's a conflicted state. And how many Jews are on the planet? In the in the total diaspora, million? I think it's like 30? ten or so. Ten million. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to me. I bring this up because you end up with anti-Semites like the the women's march leaders who were outed by tablet magazine the new york times for being anti-semitic mm-hmm. and then you but but the big tech companies who do they rush to the defense of specifically islam i'd be willing to bet if you posted right now something disparaging about a christian you'd have no problem you publish something disparaging about islam's uh, 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 muslims you'll be banned in two seconds and i think you know the argument they often bring up is that because in the united states muslims are a marginalized group but they don't realize that these policies are global and impact Europe and other places where they're not. And so you end up getting this, like, it's a really weird and twisted perspective these people in Silicon Valley have as to what Islam is. Like, Indonesia is Islamic. Those yeah. are, those are majority, Southeast Asian, Pacific Islanders. They're not Arabic. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a, the biggest it, Muslim-majority country on earth, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they have dramatically different views of Sharia law yes. as opposed to other countries. It's, it's much like... It's, Saudi it's, Arabia is trying... The Wahhabi movement's funneling a lot of money there to try to make parts make of it, it more, more radical. Right, yeah. right, right. Because it's not really. It's, like, yeah. it's, it's fairly secular. They have, like, a female prime minister, I think. Uh, I could uh, be wrong. They but, definitely have like these huge moderate Muslim groups that believe yeah. in peace. I've been right. there, and they, they'll, you know, um, they have a different view on public life. Yeah. So, so I guess it's it's my concern is if you're uh, like look at red r slash r slash atheism on Reddit, mm-hmm. predominantly anti-Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it's so it's so crazy to me that we're see we're seeing articles that pop up from these these left-wing media outlets where they praise Abrahamic religion at the same time, the same outlets attack Christianity 
I'm like, I don't care which religion you're practicing within any religion. I res- I, I believe they all are deserving of like respect and to listen, uh, and, and the freedom of religion. But the big tech companies hold a specific political tribal, uh, it, it's 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 tribal politics, but also ideological. Where a friend of mine has, she's not she's not Muslim. She has a poster of, of like it's like it's like the Barack Obama poster, but it's a, it's about protecting Islam. And I'm like, you're not Muslim. Why would you have that while you simultaneously rag on Christians all day? Can't you recognize both religions have like virtues and failures and respect people for their beliefs? Like, I don't understand how that is. And then that's a part of the ideology we see in Silicon Valley and how it pertains to r slash atheism, a huge subreddit that in the early days of Reddit was just like specifically anti-Christian and today still kind of is, but like Islam is totally fine. So this, there, I think that's... Uh, ultimately going to be damaging but more importantly i think my bigger concern is like look man i don't think christians or, or muslims need anybody's help there are billions of them mm-hmm. my bigger concern is how we have the like the far right alt-right whatever you want to call it who are very anti-semitic mm-hmm. and then we have the identitarian left which are also very anti-semitic mm-hmm. and that's why i made the point about you know israel as like a conflicted state for jewish people and there's very few relative to the other abrahamic religions yet we see the, the, the big tech come to the defense specifically of Islam and then we see uh, like the women's march leaders we see the, the far left uh, progressive democrats who are out aligned with them and in private they say horrifyingly anti-semitic things so I think you know I guess long story short what I see from big tech is a complete bias in which religions they're willing to protect and if they just upheld the principles of the first amendment then everybody would be okay right Mm-hmm. Or actually, I mean, you'd still you'd, then you'd you'd end up seeing a bunch of people saying a whole bunch of awful things. But mm-hmm. it's better than a select few getting the privilege to you know to attack specific religions, while the others are like beaten down and they say, "Oh, but you're secretly privileged." It's it's mm-hmm. mind blowing stuff to me, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I I suppose some of it is that, like in the case of Christianity, it's seen as because it was European and and, and American essentially. It's the Whiteness. man. It's the man. Yep. It's the authority, and it's um, and and. Islam needs care or something to uh, evolve forward. I think, I, think, I think it's all rooted in racism. I really do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know it's more nuanced and it's not just complicated to say they're all racists. But um, I had a conversation with a guy in the UK who said, if you're anti-Islam, you're a racist. <clears throat> and I, was, I asked him, I was like, but what is, like, wh- why? Like, you know, so, someone else was like, Islam's a religion. You can't call someone racist. And he was like, you're talking about Arabic people. And I was like, what about Indonesia? And I, and I, th- I think Indonesia isn't the only Southeast Asian Muslim nation. And, uh, and the guy was like, racism. And I was like, let me, let me ask you this. And this was an Antifa guy. If mm-hmm. you had a white Muslim, an Arabic Muslim, and an Indonesian Muslim, and someone pointed at all three of them and said, I don't like what you're saying, you'd call them racist? Like, which race? Because it's a religion. And the same thing is true for Christians. They, right, you're, you're right. They view it as the European, as the man. Mm-hmm. And then it's like associated with whiteness, but what about Christians in literally every other part of the world in Africa, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. who are targeted and, and persecuted and, and executed and the, and the Christians in Egypt, for instance, like religion transcends race. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a belief structure. It's an ideology. Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of the arguments we hear and especially the practices held up by media company, like uh, the big tech companies are based on a racist view of what religion is. Mm-hmm. They think Christians are white and they think Muslims are Arabic hmm. and that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. You can believe whatever you want, regardless of where you come from. There are white Muslims, there are black Muslims, there are white Christians, there are black Christians, and especially in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But it, so it, it it really is crazy to me. Like, I don't think the ideology we see that's behind big tech 
mm-hmm. I don't think it's cohesive. I think it's mostly just tribal. You know, so, yeah. so so it's kind of amorphous. It's just so long as the tribe is in line with it, they accept it. You know, you've been talking a lot about deplatforming. Um, you have a if you listen to Tim's videos, he has an excellent grasp on sort of telecommunications act that set up the conflict of platforms versus publishers. It's unclear oh, yeah. in American law what um, exactly some of the responsibilities are for the some of these big tech platforms. But where is this? Where is it going? Where do you uh, in terms of you you said I think in a recent uh, uh, podcast, you know, regulations coming. Oh yeah, we, we I think we all know that. Right? It doesn't. So, it doesn't matter what they do at this point. What are What are your concerns of like how regulation? Uh, you know, what should it look like if it is indeed um, coming, or what are your worries if it if it doesn't look? So like so here's some of the challenges. Right YouTube can't exist. The only reason YouTube exists is because Google pays for it. YouTube loses money. So we need to get to a point where the compression rates are better and the data transfer rates are cheaper. Because so much video is uploaded to YouTube, I think if we broke up Google, you look at YouTube and it's got multiple companies funding it, uh, supporting it. YouTube itself hosts videos. AdSense supplies ads, sells and buys. Uh, And then YouTube itself has a marketing branch where it promotes, recommends videos. So it's actually a bunch of different functions. How do you break it up? Do you say YouTube is one company? Okay, if you move YouTube out, then you've got the marketing branch and the hosting branch. But then the advertisements which support YouTube are now a different company that YouTube would have to negotiate with. I don't know if that could work. I don't. YouTube, if, if we break up Google in that way, YouTube might become a pay-only service. And then you pay you know, X amount of dollars per month for hosting time. When I upload a podcast, I actually pay for hosting time. It is not like YouTube. It is not ad-supported. So I'm paying like 20 bucks a month for a dedicated amount of server space. Mm-hmm. YouTube might turn into that. And videos are big. So if you're someone who uploads every day, you might end up paying hundreds or thousands of dollars per month. So you gotta figure out how to monetize that. Mm-hmm. That might be the smart thing to do because YouTube should not exist. I appreciate that it does, hmm. but it's built upon the monopoly of Google. The subsidi- it's, it's subsidized by Google's other businesses to make it exist. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe there should be a different structure that supports a viable business. I honestly don't know. A lot of people are saying the Section 230 thing is a good attack vector to get these companies in line. Um, Section 230 of the, commu- uh, of the Communications Decency Act is basically that no, no uh, provider or user of a platform shall be considered the speaker of content provided by another user or platform. So that means if, if you know, I write something on Facebook, Facebook's not in trouble. It also means that if I post something on, on Facebook and then someone else comments, I'm not in trouble. Mm-hmm. However, uh, there's a, it's, it's considered the good faith provision. The idea being that these, these companies were going to act like a phone company. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're literally edit- publishers with editorial stances. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, Twitter is now going to label public tweets, like tweets that break the rules that they think are in the public interest. Well, that's an editorial position. That so is like, not a platform. Right. Could you imagine if AT&T said, you know, we're going to restrict your phone calls to this number because we think it's not in your interest? Like, that's not a carrier. That's ridiculous. So what these platforms are doing is they're operating as both platforms and publishers. Yeah. When it comes to the defense of why they're not liable, they say, we're just a platform. We let right. people say whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Then when it comes to rejecting third-party apps, they say, we're a publisher. We can choose which mm-hmm. third-party apps can use our service. Mm-hmm. So Facebook argued in court. They were a publisher because they didn't want to allow one company access to their third-party apps. They then mm-hmm. argued later they were a platform and that they're not liable for the speech of others. They're mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. playing both sides. Law needs to come down and clarify what they are. I think, you know, there might be a really simple solution. Calling 
any platform that provides open access speech to a certain amount of people, calling it specifically a, a carrier. End of mm. story. Mm-hmm. And if the speech is legal, it's done. There's challenges to that. Like doxing is bad, right? So some Antifa dox Tucker Carlson recently. That would be legal. It is, it is legal mm. to share an address. Um, you might get a civil fine for like revealing public information. There might be a harassment charge. But there, I, I, I could be wrong. My understanding is if you have someone's address and you say, hey, this is their address, that's just information you're putting on the public. I don't know if there's any laws against that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so so there. So you know, basically, we have these uh, expectations of these of these uh, social media companies to remove content that people would find obscene because it's a mix of carrying and broadcasting, but they're totally trampling all over the spirit of the law. Mm-hmm. And and furthermore, when they ban anybody they want, they argue on the First Amendment that we have a First Amendment right to uh, speak what we want, and no one can force us to speak what we don't. Mm-hmm. But Section two thirty says you will not be considered the speaker. Therefore, they should not be removing content. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, the problems are way too complicated for me to, for me to figure out. A lot of the, the problems are algorithmic, mm-hmm. and you can't regulate to technology, mm-hmm. right? You can't mm-hmm. regulate that they invent something. You can try. I don't know if it'll work. But what I know is this. Project Veritas released a bunch of, a bunch of information. I was able to corroborate a little bit of it, which leads me to believe the rest is true. I got to say, some of the stuff is so unbelievable. Like this, the resist mm-hmm. document telling people to chant, you know, the stuff about no walls in sanctuary cities. That's overtly political. But um, I've seen some of the information. I corroborate some of it. And so I trust that whoever gave them this, these documents are, is genuine. Regardless of what is really happening at Google, you know, whether this woman, Jen Janai, is mm-hmm. just one person with silly opinions, doesn't matter. Republicans see it. We want an investigation. Mm-hmm. And there should be one. And now there's going to be a deeper investigation. Look, you've got James Damore, his lawsuit's carrying, and he's stepped into arbitration, but the lawsuit is still moving forward, that Google is biased against Asians and uh, Asian men and white men. You can't have these, this lawsuit moving forward into discovery. So the, there's investigations happening. Mm-hmm. You have the email from this guy referring to Jordan Peterson, PragerU, and Ben Shapiro as, you know, that those World War II guys, I'll put it that way, trying to soften up the language for your podcast. Um, mm-hmm. They're saying it. You have a video released in 2018 of Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google, saying, I am deeply offended by this election. These people don't hold our values. At what point is it fact? The, the, the evidence is overwhelming. We know they manipulated search results because a journalist wrote about how she requested they change the search results for pro-life and got the outcome she desired. Then Veritas released a document showing the blacklist, which contained all these different words. It's like there's so much evidence the media refuses to touch it. I have no idea why they love Google so much, but I'll say this. Veritas sent a letter out to a ton of uh, uh, politicians. They're absolutely going to now launch. They're going to go hardcore against it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, I, I warned, uh, you know, in the podcast on Joe Rogan, mm-hmm. I said regulation is coming, and Vijaya Gade had a, like a smirk on her face, and she was yeah. like, well, I talk to these people, and I know. And I'm like, eh, you think you know, you don't. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what's true. It matters what people mm-hmm. think is true. And mm-hmm. Republicans right now feel attacked. I think there's overwhelming evidence to, pr- to prove conservatives are being silenced on social media. And I think the reason it's happening is because, cons- is because conservatives are substantially better at the internet ecosystem. They say the left can't meme. Hmm. There was a study done that found that 4chan and the Donald produced the overwhelming amount, uh, overwhelming majority of, of successful memes. Hmm. They're really good at it. Look at, you, you see that video that Donald Trump tweeted from Carpe Donctum, where the power goes out at the, at the de- Democratic debates. And then it plays, uh, it plays um, Ozzy Osbourne. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, the lights turn back on, and there's a fog, and then Trump walks out clapping, and everyone's screaming and cheering. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's hilarious. It says nothing about Trump's policies. It says nothing about the debate. 
but that is the power of a meme to make you laugh when you see you know Trump dominate the stage. Mm-hmm. People want to have fun, mm-hmm. so conservatives know how to make jokes. They're having a good time and they're winning that battle. The response we see is Twitter starts arbitrarily banning people, putting their ideology in the rules. Well, here's what I think will happen. I think regulation will happen. The, 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 you can't stop the tide at this point. Zuckerberg even asked, right? Asked exactly. For it, and his We're co-founder here. said, because, "Break it up," because right? he wants to guide it. He wants to have some control over it. Right. right. But it's going to happen. I believe. Uh, so it, it is. It was already ruled. Packingham v. North Carolina Supreme Court ruling that the government cannot restrict access to social media. That means the only thing that could come from regulation uh, in terms of speech is free speech. The government can only ensure it. They can't restrict it. I believe that will likely happen. And when it does, Republicans will sweep the internet. Their content will, will, will explode. The left will be crushed because they, uh, you know, I think it's a collectivist versus individualist situation. Hmm. When you try to interview people on the left, liberals, they say, we'll get back to you. You try to interview a conservative, they say, can we do it now? I walk up to a guy in the street with a Trump pass, say, hey, can I interview? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I walk up to a progressive and they'll start chanting, put a sign in my face. Hmm. When I tried interviewing the DSA, they said, we'll get back to you in a couple days. I can walk up to literally any conservative and they'll be like, please interview me. That difference means that when it comes to memes, when it comes to the internet, conservatives will say whatever they want and the liberals wait for cues to make sure they're in line with their collective before they can post something that may be offensive. You even see very prominent feminists have to apologize all the time because they try to be outspoken and then get attacked for it. Like a a good example is woman, spelled correctly, is considered exclusive. So they created Wimixen, W-O-M-X-N. And they say the X, now the word represents trans women and women of color. Then another group came out and said, why do they need a special word? Are you a racist? Women of color and trans women are women. So now both women with a special spelling and spelled correctly are both offensive to the exact same group of people and you have no idea which. This results in a lot of people on the left not saying anything and not doing interviews. They want to fall in line with the tribe and make sure it's acceptable within the collective. That makes them slow. Mm-hmm. And conservatives pump out memes like crazy and see what, see what sticks and that makes them extremely effective. So I think so, if, we, if, if we move to a free speech internet with re- regulation, conservatives are going to be like a tsunami. Just like, boom. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Nia, well, do you see the deregulation? For those of us like who don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking for memes that much. I really, I want to know what's going on in my town. I want to know, you know, about crime. I want to know about school boards, things like that. And we, I, you spoke earlier how I think we've we've destroyed the ecosystem for that information reporting, essentially, right? Social media did. Yeah, and and frankly, I would like to see conservatives do more reporting. I agree. In addition to you know opinion, but will will the with the deregulation that we we know will happen in big tech do you think it will favor um will allow for uh an improved you know civic ecosystem of information that's not oh no it'll be worse way worse (laughs) substantially worse it's going to become a the internet will become a nightmare so look there's very few clansmen you know in the world but on the internet they're fervent and vitriolic and just (sighs) Mm mm-hmm once they get free reign, they're going to pump out thousands of tweets per day. The problem right now is the equivalent of a Klansman on the left, a left-wing identitarian, has free reign to pump out their insane nonsense. So we see it. Make a free speech internet, and you're going to see the crazies of the right pop up, and it's going to be, and then both sides are going to go crazy. And I don't have no idea how to solve that, how to solve that problem. Social media has, has uh, amplified the extremists. Mm-hmm. Because social media only really targets right-wing extremists, 
you have this very clean-cut conservative base on the internet and a fringe, wacky left losing its mind. Mm-hmm. And then the Democrats try to chase after woke Twitter, and so they say ridiculous things in the debate stage, and they're, they're circling the drain, man. I yeah. can't believe it. What? Okay, well, I guess my last question for you, I really appreciate your time and, and showing us your awesome facility here. Oh, yeah. Like, what, what would you want to say to, like, Gen Y and Gen Z? And I'm, I teach them in the classroom, you know, but um, uh, young to those generations uh, as to, like, Gen Y, the way to live right now. Gen Y, well, Gen Y are millennials, I think. Mm -hmm. Like millennials, I, they've lost it. I don't know. Gen Z is smart. You know, I think I think what happened was Gen X grew up before the internet. Millennials grew up at the right time, and Gen Z grew up with the internet. So I, what what I mean by right time is, millennials when we when when I was young, uh, I always had I always had the internet. So I'm probably more similar to a Gen Zer. But most millennials didn't have the internet until they were young teenagers, and so they didn't have this ingrained in them to do their own research and be mentally resilient. So all of a sudden now the internet appears, and they start getting inundated with this nonsense identitarian articles from these outlets, and their brains turn to mush. Gen Z grew up with that, and so they don't believe anything on the internet. The internet's full of lies. So you see the story, and they roll their eyes, and then they look for themselves. So Gen Z has actually shifted more towards conservative. They're definitely still more uh, progressive than Gen X. But it's the first time in the past, like, 150 years that a generation has moved to the right, even if it's just a little bit. Gen Xers grew up at a time where if you wanted to know something, you had to figure it out yourself. So by the time you, you know, you were, like, 19 or 20, if you needed to know something, you had to do research. Mm-hmm. Millennials would just go online and see it and go, huh. You know, so it was a bad time for millennials. So I, I guess my advice to everybody is 90% of the media is some kind of lie. Some kind of lie. Um, and or some kind of false information. Mm. It's really hard to know because even I rely on you know NBC sometimes. Even though I know NBC's put out fake news before recently, like I'll read an NBC article and just be like, "What else can I do?" You know. So then when they have to issue a correction, so do I. It's tough. It's a, it's a huge challenge. But um, the, the, the I guess the last thing I can say in this you know particular line of thought is. I love, I don't know if you've ever heard of the dihydrogen, dihydrogen monoxide hoax. You ever hear of that? No, maybe. It's a funny old joke, came up in the 80s, I think. Basically, it's, it goes like this. Let me, uh, um, uh, have you ever heard of hydric acid? Do you know what that is, hydric acid? Yeah. You, you know what hydric acid is? I've heard of it. It's a, it's a corrosive yeah. substance. Uh-huh. They, they use it to clean car batteries to get the okay. gunk off. Yeah. Um, it's used in nuclear facilities. So uh, recently... We found out that in New York City, they were finding large quantities of hydric acid in the plumbing systems. And this is stuff that's found in all cancer. 100% of cancers has hydric acid in it. If you inhale a little bit of this, you could die. And that's in, that's in New York plumbing. Don't you think we should get somebody to do something about it? Right? Wouldn't you agree that something should be done about this? That's, that's how that, politics yeah, works. That was true. Yeah. It, it is true. Everything I said was true, 100%. I'm not kidding. It's factually correct. Yeah, hydric acid is water. The way I frame it's, it's called the dihydrogen monoxide hoax. Frame <laughs> okay. something in a way and you can freak people out. That's what the news is. If we need to make you angry, how can we do it? Framing. So you take a story about um, a white. You take a story about a white, uh, a white, uh, a white cop and a black guy, and then you frame it in such a way where it sounds like the cop was the bad guy or the black guy was the bad guy, and then you feed it off to whatever audience is going to be receptive to it. And that's what media has been doing. Not because journalists are bad people, but because journalism died when the internet fractured, when information became so cheap that, you know, we used to pay the New York Times 
for public access intelligence. You have private intelligence, you have public intelligence. Well, guess mm -hmm. what? Public intelligence became almost free because of the ability to replicate data. Mm -hmm. So the only way to, to, to monetize now is to compete for what can catch attention. And now we've gone from news agencies being intelligence agencies for the public to being attention agencies for the public. Mm -hmm. Capture your attention. Yeah. I'm going to tell you hydric acid's in your water, and it's used to clean car batteries. The and it's, it's you, know, you know they store nuclear rods in hydric acid? Mm. And, and that's in your plumbing. <laughs> and then you freak out, you share it, it gets 100,000 views, and people... You know, that's a really good example because Doesn't we there really... there's a story, too, of people growing horns. There was a false... I thought it, yeah. I think it was false, like Washington From hunching Post. over, they're getting horns. And... Right, growing out of the back look of your at, skull, look, look at the woman... turned out to be a false story that the Washington Post... I Covington. Think, yeah, Covington wrote. No, no, Covington kids. Oh, right, right, right. Really good there example. Go. Yeah. Look at the story of the woman who they claimed uh, was 17 and depressed, so a doctor euthanized her. Mm -hmm. Totally fake. Totally fake. And everyone just picked it up and ran with it without question. Why? It was juicy. It was money. Money in the bank. That's one of the reasons I use NewsGuard. I disagree with them on a lot of their ratings, but that's a good thing. I shouldn't be choosing what is credible or not. And even though I think NewsGuard gets it wrong sometimes, for the most part, they do a good job. I think they're balanced. They give Daily Wire a green check. They give Huffington Post a green check. I get it. They're biased. I trust one more than the other. But when I read something, I want someone else to be check, you know, checking my biases. Mm -hmm. you know, so sometimes I will read, read from sites that are rated negatively by uh, NewsGuard, mm -hmm. but only if they get the, the green check mark in doesn't present false information. Mm -hmm. You can criticize well, think... them for not, not disclosing who funds them or mm -hmm. for being an opinion column and not disclosing that either. It annoys me. But as long as NewsGuard says you don't publish fake news, I'm willing to use it to, to varying degrees, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and like NewsGuard, I mean, I sort of believe in the old school idea that, um, and, and, and I think some people forget in the discussion of fake news or when news media make mistakes, good news outlets correct themselves, right? I right. actually believe the corrections process is actually is clunky and flawed, and I wanna, I'm working on some stuff to fix that um, in the industry. But, um, but, you know, Hollywood doesn't correct itself when it makes mistakes. There's a lot of people who don't admit their lies. But, like, at least our ethical ideals in our industry is that... You know, we fire people who lie. The New York Times fires people who they don't, lie. But here, here's the thing. <laughs> they, they only do when they have to. Look at that. Who was that, who was that German guy, I can remember, who was working oh, for yeah, like... Oh, Der Spiegel, yeah. Yeah, right. Another recent case, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got away with it forever. Nobody wanted to question it. It was too good. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at... But the, I would say, like, having worked inside the Wall Street Journal, I, I know they don't fire people unless they have to, but also I, I do see if someone makes tons of mistakes... Um, they're demoted, their pay's docked, it's a bad thing, and, and that, people that, are managed but that's, that's out. What, that, that's yeah. when people know about it. I mean, look, look at the New York Times running a front-page story from Kevin Roos. You know, the whole thing's fake. The whole story he published was completely fake. Which, which one? The one on YouTube radicalization. Oh. There, that, 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 I, I officially canceled my New York Times subscription hmm. following that story. I have no problem if they want to hire Kevin Roos, who's an identitarian, or Sarah Jong, who's an identitarian. I get it. You have some kind of weird, in, like, cultist belief. Fine. I think you're nuts. As long as the news is, is following an editorial standard, I don't care what you believe. Like, I, I'm not a religious person. I have no problem if a journalist is religious, so long as they follow basic editorial standards. I can understand their perspective. But when you publish front-page news where you lie nonstop, like, I mean, I kid you not. First of all... Did Roos, like, did at all, like, I read his column, right, in, in his yeah. coverage, and, I mean, I don't analyze it, care, you know everything word by word but I, I would guess some of his stuff is good maybe but that did he did he was did he or any editors uh, admit later that that story wasn't on the money uh, the story the one that is, you're talking about right so the problem is 
the story is so obviously insane, it doesn't even follow its own premise. It's like I would I would make it akin to Alex Jones writing a front front page article from the New York Times. He claims he found someone who was a regular person who goes on YouTube, and then YouTube made him become a radical. Except the guy actually says in the article he never went alt right. He was just a traditional conservative. He then says that watching YouTube made him a liberal. The complete opposite of the premise presented on the on, in, in the title. The whole story is a twist that contradicts itself and disproves itself. There's no data. There was no analysis. There were no corrections when he was when it, when it was when it was proven wrong. I sent him the data. He messaged me about it. Hmm. He never he never included any stories or any updates or corrections. The whole thing was fake. He it's literally made up. He found a guy. So he, I'll tell you the premise of the story. Kevin Roos of the New York Times watched a YouTube video, and then created a conspiracy theory about what he thought it meant, with no data, no fact checking, so nothing the, to back up his the claim. The guy he profiled. Did you talk to that guy? Yep. And did he say he was taken out of context? Or he did. Oh, oh really um, interesting. But not as not to the degree that I'm claiming. He said that there were certain people included who should not have been included in the story, and that was a mistake. He says he was never alt right. He was never completely radicalized. He never bought into far-right beliefs. That's all in the story. So how you write a front-page story claiming YouTube radicalized someone when the premise is that a conservative watched YouTube and then started watching liberal YouTubers, that's literally in the story. The whole premise was, was backwards. Hmm. It made no sense. I don't know why. You know, I'll, I'll tell you this. I think the reason the New York Times did it is you take a look at the New York Times social media engagement and it's trash. What do they have, like 40 million Twitter followers? They get like 10 retweets. Nobody cares about them. They do this story, though. Well, to be to be fair, I mean, we can talk and criticize at times, but I will say to to their credit, they've got like 4.3 million subscribers, and they want to get to 10 million, so they are hiring, they are profitable, they're doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. They have some good strategy, although. And part of it includes their Twitter strategy. This this not. story got I think like 10,000 plus retweets in a day. Yeah, good business. Congratulations. Evil, disgusting. Hmm. I know I know Kevin Roos personally. I know him to be a liar. And uh, I, will, I have no problem stating on the record the man lies. And I have uh, chat logs of him, of uh, him admitting to refusing, uh, refusing for us to call out a fa- an organization for refusing to fact check. So mm-hmm. long story short, uh, an organization did some really unethical news practices. And when I was working at Fusion with Kevin, who was the managing editor, I said, I'm going I to I do this story. He said, don't do it. Don't, don't call them out. No, because we don't, we don't want to get called out either. Hmm. Yep. Nice. And, that, and, then, and then sure enough... Well, I'll just tell you, the organization was the New York Times. They up, they heavily edited an article. 85% of an article was changed. They turned it from a fact-based short news story with 100 words into an analysis op-ed in favor of feminism. And when I said this is a huge deal, it violates most tenets of the internet, It was the story was purged from Reddit. One of the top all-time stories of Reddit purged for mm-hmm. breaking its rules. And he told me not to publish the story because we do the same thing. Fusion does. Hmm. And then sure enough, he goes and works for the New York Times right afterwards. Yeah, the dude's dirty. Interesting. Yep. So, uh, a lot and, of our... and I reached out to the New York Times, mm-hmm. and you get their responses. What? Yeah, no, nothing too polite. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I won't swear. Um, I'm, I, it's not like they directly said, you know, you know, screw up or something. They just said like we appreciate the feedback. Oh. And then, did they make any changes? Did they correct? Nope. The about story... that original story you're talking about, right? The, front page the story has no no data in it. None. Mm-hmm. Literally none. It was one guy who watched a YouTube video and they ran a front page story about his conspiracy theories about why it happened. That to me is mind blowing. Hmm. When the New York Times falls to that level, like journalism's dead and dying, right? Like it died a long time ago with the rise of these insane hyper-partisan websites that were trying to make you angry for, for money. And the New York Times can't compete or, look, everybody wants to grow in forever. They want to grow forever. The New York Times, yeah, they want to hit 10 million. Here's how you do it. 
you write nonsense. You go Alex Jones. Alex Jones paved the way for everybody. You know, and that's what they're doing. Wall Street Journal's still pretty good. They're the only ones I still pay for. Hmm. Okay. Yep. And yeah, their opinions it's... are conservative, so I can disagree in that regard. Uh, I, I guess can... we... In, I agree. Well, I guess... Um, I could agree to criticize the journal or the Times on different stories or points, that, you know, but I still believe there's good reporting happening in both the publications. We could agree to disagree or whatnot. Well, yeah, but, there but is. But I think one thing I, I'm interested in is is this like the idea of slow news movement. I guess some German researchers were had talked about it. It's not that revolutionary of an idea, but the notion that maybe reading a little less on Twitter and more in print, making a choice. Hey, I read the journal or I read the Times or the New Yorker, whatever it is. But but also maybe. Being more thoughtful about each piece, like, um, do you know what do you know what Galman amnesia is? The Galman amnesia effect. If you're an expert on a certain issue, like uh, this is why I canceled my subscription to the Times. I am an expert on YouTube. I understand the algorithm greatly. I've looked at all the data. I've researched this. I've been smeared by people who are lying about it. I see that story. I know it's fake. The average person, like, so I'll get a better example would be like, let's say you're a carpenter. And there's a front page story in the Times about carpentry. And you read it and you go, what? This is nonsense. They have no idea what they're talking about. You then turn the page and you see a story about Syria and go, wow, I didn't know that. If you saw them publish fake news, why would you assume anything else is true? You can't. You have to assume it's fake. The area in which you're an expert, they've proven to be not knowledgeable of. Why would they be knowledgeable of anything else? So when I see an overt fake story promoted front and center, I cut off the news stores. You know, for the most part. Interesting. So I stopped subscribing. I mean, because like... Um, the same read... thing happened for the for Washington Post. I was like... Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, like, internet the Washington Post once. Like, when you're in the... As you know, when you work at a place or in the industry for 10 years or 20... You know... I know a lot of the names, and I know when I read the business section at the Times, the Journal, the Post, like, certain writers who are really awesome and really, on you know, on point. So I... I you know, maybe journalists or experts on certain topics we read with certain increased knowledge. Um... Uh, I think we need tech, frankly, that, that helps readers, that the more tech we have that is, helps news organizations be transparent with the public and more importantly the, the public to understand, to kind of the curtain behind, you know, the Wizard of Oz, to understand, you know, each journalist and, and how good they are on that particular story or that beat. To me, that's kind of what's needed. And I hope we, we get more you tech know, that does that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when um, the New York Times published that story, the people who want to believe it's true, they won't challenge it. They'll just believe it's true. A really good example is uh, two identical pheno- uh, two identical circumstances. The first was something called the Alternative Influencer Network Report by Data and Society, of which I was smeared as uh, having worked with Stefan Molyneux. I'd never met the guy. They had they had they they claimed that I had also uh, worked or collaborated with Andy Worski. Never met the guy. Lies, and it was paraded around in mainstream press as fact. Everyone carries like it's just, it's everywhere. You know, it was like uh, it's been mentioned by the Guardian, Fast Company, you know, Huffington Post, just you name it, and it's still cited to this day as evidence that YouTube radicalizes. But the whole thing was fake. They claimed uh, YouTube comedian Chris Reagan collaborated with Richard Spencer. It's like if you knew who these guys were, you'd bust out laughing. It, like a better example would be like I don't know, saying Seth Meyers showed up to Charlottesville to join the the, the rally. You're like. Uh, that's insane. That dude is. There's no way that's possible, and that's what they claimed. Use this fact. Then a guy named Ewan Lenahan produced a report that did something similar with left-wing journalists in Antifa, and they ran all these stories about how fake it was. So you have quite literally the same things. 
Um, one guy says, hey, look, these journalists are Antifa. Another person says, hey, look, these journalists are alt-right. The media claimed the alt-right report without fact-checking, without data, without proof, said it was true. And then they said that the Antifa one was fake because it has no data and it's not, and, and no one fact-checked it. That's, that's how the media runs, right? See, you know, sounds from everything we're talking about, it sounds like the, um, you know, I keep coming back to what are the answers, what are the solutions? Is, is the answer education? I mean, for broader society, to get, like, the, not on the internet, but off internet? Is it events and talking to people in real places, like in this I mean, town of Norwalk, sure. in this theater? I mean, you could, uh, you could have your newsroom ban Twitter. Just have, ban Twitter. Um, Twitter and Facebook are really, really bad. The rapid sharing uh, allows companies to weaponize rage. YouTube, a little bit, but not so much, because YouTube on YouTube can't directly share. Do your, how about your videos? Do they incite people does that is that part of your strategy since you know that's far, part of the uh, algorithm that that people certain emotions they call my, my, my own audience audience calls me a milk toast fence sitter that's like <laughs> the the common joke so I would be an idiot or a liar if I claimed my content didn't rile people up of course but I you know as much as anybody would defend their work I feel like for one thing like I said I use a third-party fact checker to check my own biases I want to make sure you know we're doing things right I've removed myself from the editorial process for the most part of Subverse to allow them to be free of my opinion when they produce content. I don't choose the stories. I don't write the scripts. I may host some videos sometimes, but since the inception of Subverse, I have not had a hand in editorial or reporting, right? Um, you know, and we're going to put fact checkers on top of that. So I'm trying to do better. And then in terms of the content I produce, I think my opinions are fairly, like, tepid. You know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll freely criticize the extremists on either side, admittedly. We don't have alt-right people in Congress. We do have identitarian leftists in Congress, so my focus is pretty specific. And the Democrats have run off the rails because media has driven them insane, so I, I do point in one direction. But I think for the most part, if you're a conservative, like a hardcore Trump supporter, and you watch my content, you will be exposed to ideas you normally wouldn't be exposed to because I will bring about like my personal reasons for being pro-choice. Like in an honest way. Like I understand why you're pro-life, I've heard your argument, I respect the argument. Now I'm going to present my, my argument and, my, my, and the flaws within it, you know, just what, how I feel. Mm -hmm. if, if you have like a, 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 you know, someone who's a liberal progressive who only attacks Trump, then it's, really, it's actually, I'll, I'll put it this way, it's really interesting because I've, I've had conversations with progressives, uh, uh, David Pakman, for instance. I think Dave's great. Uh, I got a lot of respect for him and um, we had a great conversation. And he said, my content isn't something you'd expect to see from a social liberal. And I was like, is my content wrong? Is my opinions in them wrong? Is my justification for why I feel this way wrong? Like none of it is. It's all. It's so. Look, sometimes heterodox people exist. Plain and simple. Uh, my positions are slightly to the left, but I feel like the far left is destroying the Democrats' chance of actually having these, you know, positions and policies. But I thought about that. And I thought it was really interesting. What do you accomplish being a progressive, preaching to progressives about how Republicans are bad? Nothing. You push your progressives away from Republicans. What do you accomplish by being a social liberal who's willing to engage with Republicans? you are able to then share liberal ideas to people who normally don't hear them. So my audience isn't actually overtly Trump supporters. It's actually kind of moderate right to moderate left. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's mostly centrist, I've found. I don't know for sure. I'd be willing to bet that if we were doing like a percentage base, it would be like 40% Republican, then like 20% liberal, and the rest are like moderate, like middle centrists. Mm -hmm. So liberals, you know, I think... Uh, the easy way to explain it is my friends that I grew up with that I hang out today, all liberals, all liberals, mm -hmm. like, you know, Emily is like Bernie Sanders, you know, mm -hmm. but 
but we are like active researchers. So why is it that Emily and I will have similar opinions, but we're both kind of on the left? Is because we actually dig into these stories to figure out what's true and what isn't. But I have friends who have completely disassociated from politics. All of my friends who were pro-Bernie in 2016 said, I'm over it. It was stolen. It was a cheat. I'm not playing anymore. Hmm. So when you, lose, when you lose the moderate Democrat types, who are the ones who, who voted for Obama, who say, like, we should have border security. You know, it doesn't mean we don't like the migrants or want them to be hurt. We want to protect them, but we got to have, you know, legal restrictions. They're gone. All that's left is the far left saying open borders and the Democrats pander to them for votes. And so then me, somebody who still is this like 2008 Democrat Obama kind of, you know, alignment, I'm still sitting here with my same principles, my same beliefs, saying the same things. But now, you know, the way I put it is I've got Republicans to my right and I've got the far left. Who's closer to me in terms of principles and, 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 and politics? Republicans. Hmm. So they'll call me a conservative for that. Mm-hmm. At, but moderate liberals, they don't. They, they call me a liberal because I can straight up be like, here's why I agree with Obama. You know? And then they're like, I get that. I understand that. Obama was great. Even Biden was like, Obama was great. And they attacked him on the debate stage. So the way I see it is the far left is becoming more and more prevalent because regular liberals have bowed out. The Democrats are veering further and further left because the media is convincing them this is what people want. But I assure you, the, the opinions of the ivory tower elites in, uh, of New York is not the opinions of working class America. Agreed. And this can be <laughs> exemplified very simply by a tweet put out by Rachel Bade of the Washington Post yesterday when she said, quote, overheard in a bar. I don't think I'm a Democrat anymore. Someone said in response to how far left the Democrats have gone during the debate. Hmm. And that's what my video today that I think just went up is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it went up half an hour ago that if you are a Democrat who supported Obama and you watched that debate, you're probably thinking you're a Republican now. Mm-hmm. Like 10 years ago, Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer, you know, they're all saying, we need border security, we need fences. Hillary Clinton called for a border, bar- border barrier only a few years before the election. Where are they today? She was called out for it. They said, you said you wanted a border barrier. Well, it's not a wall. She has the same politics as Trump. I think one thing, you've got a couple things. You've got the media chasing this far left narrative for clicks. But you've also got the fact that Trump, on a lot of policy positions, like border security, was in a lot was in alignment with the Democrats. You know? He comes out and he, he unfurls so an LGBT flag on the Republican stage and people clap for it. I'm like, mm, culturally he's moved the Republicans a little bit over. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't believe Trump is actually a, a conservative Christian. He's a New York liberal, I think. He's always been fairly agnostic. He's probably Christian, but not like super Christian like the Republicans used to be. On a lot of positions, he's a bit more aggressive and to the right. But what happens when he, he adopts an immigration policy that's basically Obama? The Democrats have to oppose him from the left. Mm-hmm. And so it's pushed them off the, off the deep end. You know? Yeah, no, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, okay, so a lot of our listeners in different parts of the world, they're probably, this is going to boggle their minds, this conversation, <laughs> which is fine. Oh, I guess. Yeah, but um, I don't know. Any thoughts of for people in India, people in Africa, people in Latin America? Can their, can their places do it better? Like somehow? I don't know. I guess I don't know enough about, you know, everyone's Each kind one. of individual oh, yeah, yeah. culture. We, yeah. have, we have a First Amendment in this country, which is protecting us greatly. In, mm-hmm. in, in Europe, they arrest people for saying naughty words. So we're in a very different position. I think we're going to see regulation across the world. And if you don't have a governmental protection on expression, it's going to go the opposite direction as to the U.S. Regulation in the U.S. will guarantee speech. Regulation everywhere else will take it away. Mm-hmm. You got time for one more quick point I want to make for Absolutely. the religious for uh, yep. Abrahamic listeners? Yeah. I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, I grew up Catholic. I am, I am not particularly, I, I am no longer in alignment with Abrahamic belief, but mm-hmm. I, do, I, I still believe in God and, and it's a very complicated belief I have. 
but I believe in God. And what I think is really important for liberals to understand, true liberals that may be agnostic, mm-hmm. is that our understanding of the presumption of innocence and a lot of our common law is rooted in the Bible. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God will not destroy the town if there is but one righteous person in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that translated over thousands of years into our understanding of it is better that 10, uh, ten guilty persons go free than one innocent suffer. So I say this specifically to people who may not be religious, or if you're religious and you want to present you know, an understanding of how religion can be a good thing. I have a lot of liberal friends who are just of com- the complete belief that, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam are all just awful because they're... No, 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 no. What we've been able to do is take these ideas through thousands of years that are good and transform them into part of society that we think are even better. And we've got rid- gotten rid of a lot of bad things. Yeah. So I, I just like telling that story to uh, for people who are religious because I think it's an effective way to communicate to people who might be atheist or agnostic the benefits of religion. Yeah. Blackstone's formulation literally is rooted in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, various civilizations p- picked up good things, sometimes bad things, like you say. Yeah. And then we keep the good and we get rid of the bad. Even the concept of human rights after World War II came from some religious thinking. Now we're fighting over what is a human right again. Right, 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 right. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, there you go. Final thought. I appreciate that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us and good luck with the new studio and all the projects here, Tim. Cheers. Yeah. Once again, you have been listening to a conversation between our executive director, Paul Gladder, and award-winning American journalist, Tim Poole. Please take a moment to follow our podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also check us out online at religionunplugged.com and themediaproject.org.